Las Vegas, famous, fabulous playground of the West. A wide open town that never goes to sleep. Vegas! Vegas, baby, Vegas! You're either in or you're out. Right now. My best mates are going to Las Vegas this weekend. I'm told it's incredible. Las Vegas, here we go! <laughs> Pack your bags and get ready. You're going to Vegas with people who know Vegas. You're listening to Vegas Never Sleeps with Stephen Maggi. Welcome to Vegas. We know that Vegas lovers respect the town's gritty history. The world of organized crime has been a part of Vegas lore for decades, and you're probably aware of most of it. But have you ever heard of Louis the Coin? Louis was both a talented jeweler and a forger who lived a fast life and changed the face of casino gambling forever. Today, you'll learn Louis's story from a couple of guys who knew him and his story. Writer John Cullen, who has completed a feature film screenplay titled Coin Man, which is an adaptation of the book You Thought It Was More, joins us, as does Jerry Longo, a retired detective and sergeant from the Connecticut State Police, who's worked on high-profile casino cases, including the MIT Group, and according to the Secret Service, one of the largest coin-slash-token counterfeiting cases in their history. Also on today's show, you'll hear the return of your Vegas insider, Scott Robin of VitalVegas.com, and the Vegas crime blotter with Mr. Big. If you're a fan of Las Vegas, you're also a fan of how the underworld works around here. Of course, Vegas was started by the underworld, and the idea of beating the system is so incredible, nobody can do it, or can they? We're going to talk about a guy that was known as the world's greatest counterfeiter, and there's a great book out on this you got to get. It's called You Thought It Was More? Adventures of the World's Greatest Counterfeiter, Louis the Coin. With us today, we got a couple of great guys, John Cullen and Jerry Lango. Let's introduce John first. He's the editor of a newspaper out in Connecticut and writes screenplays and novels under the pen name Jack Chaucer. Well, John, let's talk about this. You've dealt for a long time and you yeah. followed this. Right. As the more you learn about Louis, the more fascinating it, it is, right? I mean, this guy was really something special. Absolutely. I actually didn't even know about him growing up, but uh, I, when I read uh, Andy's book, and obviously Louis wrote it too, um, I, I was fascinated, you know, because it took me. I live in Connecticut now, but I grew up in Rhode Island, so I was fascinated by what these guys were pulling off. Um, especially when he was basically, uh, you know, doing his, his counterfeiting operation two blocks from the North Providence Police Station. He was launching the greatest counterfeiting operation ever behind a false wall of a jewelry shop. I mean, it's amazing, you know, and I didn't know that. I've, I've driven past Mineral Spring Avenue many times, and you didn't know what kind of stuff was going on. Um, so when I read the book, it was fascinating, and, and to me, it felt like uh, it was like Goodfellas. Only this was even more interesting in the fact that Louis was such a genius. He was like a, a Thomas Edison. He, he was inventing uh, all kinds of gadgets, and, he, and uh, ultimately coming up with with this kind of a counterfeiting scheme to pull that off. He, he was just so smart. He, he was a wise guy because he was part of the mob, but he was also a genius at the same time um, in, in manufacturing, in, in metallurgy. Um, you know, coming up with a phone gadget to beat Ma Bell back in the 60s <laughs> that fit inside a Marlboro cigarette box 
it had little buttons, you know, green, red, yellow for the dime quarter and nickel. I mean, it was, it was amazing, you know, and so when you read that, and, and Andy um, Tebow, my colleague at the paper, asked me to write the screenplay, I was like, yeah, I mean, I, I, I would be happy to. Well, this was um, so meant for that, different. yeah. So, so how is that yeah, coming along? Because I, mean, I mean, it's just made for that. Louis Colvecchio, yeah. my God. Yeah. Honestly, it, it, after I, I read the book the summer before, and I started writing the screenplay, I think in uh, January of uh, was it last year, and, and I, I or was it this year? This year, earlier this year, it only took me like probably four weeks to write the first draft, um, which is is pretty. <laughs> it's pretty good. Uh, because it was so, I knew the story well, and it just came together so well. And then it's just a matter of revising from there. And I've been, I've been pitching it to various producers since then. And, uh, you know, you get a nibble here or there. There's definitely interest. I mean, some producers already have. I already have something in that mob space, they'll tell me. Um, but keep going with it, because it's, it's this guy's a fascinating character. He's, he's flawed. He's unapologetic. He's got swagger, you know. Um, what I find interesting yeah. about Louie, too, is... He also had that artistic side to go along with this. I mean, you know, and we're going to talk to Jerry Longo in just a minute about yeah. that from the police side of the coin. But you had to admire this guy's ability because it's just so incredible. It is. He stood out. And, and, and as Jerry will tell you, many people try to counterfeit these chips and tokens. I mean, that's not unusual. But his stuff was just so good. His, his coins and tokens you know, they couldn't, the state police couldn't detect it under a microscope, but they had to go to the crime lab to see how, I mean, he really was a perfectionist and it wasn't just the look of it. It was the feel of it. He wanted these chips beat up enough. So it looked like they were used, you know, and they couldn't look too good, you know, but they had to be just right. And and he was a perfectionist and that's why he was able to pull it off. He, he, he re-engineered the, the, the drill, the hydraulic press, to make the, make it possible, so so that the so that the chips could withstand the pressures and everything, he he takes a state of the art hydraulic press and makes it better. He had to add certain things to it to pull this off. That's the kind of lengths he was willing to go to, and he always felt he was smarter than the feds, far, smarter than the than the suits, and he, he did prove that. You know, <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So it, it, it's an amazing story, and not many people know about it, which is also interesting. Well, let's introduce uh, somebody from the uh, the good guys from the uh, from the yeah. law side, Jerry Longo. Right now, the supervisor, senior investigator of the Gaming Commission, which includes Gaming Commission and Security Department investigations. He's been with the Mohegan Tribal Gaming Commission since two thousand and three, uh, and Jerry's worked in law enforcement for any number of years before that, and was involved with this. Jerry, as somebody who was on the other side. You had to grudgingly admire this guy in a way, right? Because he, he wasn't out hurting well, I, people, I, but he was doing incredible stuff. I, I wrote the forward for the book. Yeah, I know him. <laughs> uh, we became friends. <laughs> Post-arrest, he sent me, a he, when he was in Fort Dix in a, in a federal uh, pen, he, he wrote to the department anyway, not to me directly, he didn't have my address, but he wrote to the department and sent me a Christmas card. So I wrote... I wrote him back and then we started writing to each other and then we exchanged phone numbers and he would, uh, I would get the, Hey, you have a phone call from inmate number so-and-so and we would talk <laughs> and we became friends and we stayed that way. And then, uh, Andy Tebow and I, and he, uh, we taught some classes at some colleges, good guy, bad guy classes. Uh, uh, but I called him every once in a while and, and we just, we just stayed friends. He was a great, he reminded me of half of the guys in my family. I mean, you know, you can tell by my name, I'm that kind of guy. So, uh, 
you know, and I had my my family had some small indiscretions in their in their past, but uh, you know, and you either became and my family became a crook, a, a priest, or a cop. So I, you know, you know which way I went, but. <laughs> But we became we became friends only because I treated him like a gentleman. And if Louis was anything, he was a gentleman. He, he was a criminal. <laughs> he was a great criminal. Right. But he was also a gentleman. Back with more from writer John Cullen and retired detective and sergeant from the Connecticut State Police, Jerry Longo, in just a moment. How'd you like to see one of the best shows in Vegas, the Jets in Concert? Well, we're still giving away passes to their shows at Planet Hollywood. Just email John, that's J-O-N, at VegasNeverSleeps.com with your name and address. Tickets are available while they last. Just a reminder, please visit Vegas Never Sleeps online. For the best in Vegas, it's VegasNeverSleeps.com. And for great classic sports, it's Sports. R-A-C-X, which is available on radio stations nationwide and wherever you listen to podcasts. That's Sports R-A-C-X, short for Sports Rockin' Tours. And later today on Sports Rockin' Tours, it's a conversation with a couple of good friends and former fierce rivals, Fred Blitnikoff of the Oakland Raiders and Willie Lanier of the Kansas City Chiefs. Fred and Willie share stories from the past that you do not want to miss. You're listening to Vegas Never Sleeps with Stephen Maggi, coast to coast on the Talk Media Network. If you're a diabetic, we have great news. You can end the painful finger sticks with a new CGM. Plus, they may be covered by Medicare, Medicaid, or private insurance. If you test and inject daily, you may qualify. Call U.S. Med now to learn more. 800-437-1424. 800-437-1424. That's 800-437-1424. Celebrity Voice Impersonated. This is Dr. Phil talking at you. You know all those messed up kids you see on my TV show? Well, they're not book readers. Your kids need something fun to read. That's why I recommend American Stonehenge. It's a modern adventure story filled with great characters and mysterious plot twists. For a free preview of the first four chapters, go to jimmyandandrew.com. That's jimmyandandrew.com. Use promo code RICH25 and receive a 25% discount. Go to jimmyandandrew.com and use promo code RICH25. Get your kids reading. That way, they stay off my TV show. What were you thinking? Wayne Klingman or you might know him better as Mr. Big, is out handling a dispute, but he did want to say thank you for listening to Vintage Vegas Crime Blotter every week. He also wants to remind you you can get copies of his books on Amazon. Just simply search Wayne Klingman, that's spelled C-L-I-N-G-M-A-N, again, Wayne Klingman, for the best in Vegas reading materials.
Now, let's return to Vegas Never Sleeps with Stephen Maggi. You are listening to writer John Cullen and Detective Jerry Longo discuss the life and times of Louis the Coin Colavecchio, whose story is chronicled in the book, You Thought It Was More. Say, when he got arrested in New Jersey, they, they kind of roughed him up a little bit when they were treating him, you know, mm-hmm. not beating him with a rubber hose or anything, but they didn't treat him very well. And when I went to arrest him in Connecticut after my case concluded, and it took almost two years to put my case together, um, I invited him to the barracks, and I, I had cannoli and espresso. I brought him in the back door. I wouldn't let him, I, I, you know, I took him around the press. We, we chatted. We talked about, you know, making Sunday gravy. We talked about, you know, the, the, that kind of stuff. And, and I said, oh, now I'm going to take your picture. <laughs> you know, so I'm like, hey, does your mother put, does your mother use neck bones in her sauce? You know, and I said, okay, now I'm going to take your fingerprint. So we were, we were, we, we connected as people because we were both polite to each other. Here's a yeah. guy that made over $4 million from casinos, you know, around the country. And you told me a fascinating story. I want you to share it with some of the people you work with out in Las Vegas where they were saying, like, oh, it didn't happen. And uh, you're saying, huh? Why did you tell that story? Well, after we, after we developed the information and we, we got him on surveillance, we tracked him down. Um, I was doing my arrest warrants with the Secret Service in Connecticut because it was an international, I mean, interstate uh, criminal activity and Secret Service does coin counterfeiting and, and counterfeit money and all that. Um, so we did the raid on uh, Mineral Springs and I was in on that and I was, I, I was one of the evidence officers. Everybody had their own little duties. And we broke apart all of the stuff he had in barrels up behind his house, which were the, the pieces of the coins that he had minted and leftovers. And we found that there was a, there was approximately 35 different casinos that he was counterfeiting for, many of them in Las Vegas. So I called the, the respective uh, corporate security people at those casinos in Vegas. And to a, one, to a man, uh, every one of them said he didn't do anything here. And I'm going, look, I got... Mail records that he mailed boxes. I got, you know, receipts that he spayed at hotels. I've got, I've got, he was out there spending this stuff, dropping counterfeit chips and tokens and stuff on you guys. And they all said, nope, no, he wasn't. Have fun with your case. <laughs> and I said, are you guys like for real? Are you you're like, you're really full of shit if you're telling me that he didn't do, I know he did this. He told me he did this. And they said, we didn't do it. He didn't do it. He didn't come here. We don't know about him. Uh, it's nice, lovely talking to you. Enjoy the winter, you know. And I go, what the hell? So I finally hooked up with a couple of FBI guys that worked for Steve Wins, the corporate security detail that trusted me, and we had worked in the past together when they were in the New York office, and we put some cases together. And I, and I knew these guys enough, well enough, to where I took them out to for a couple of drinks. There's a little, I call it a cop bar. I think it's more of a a lawyer bar near the courthouse in Vegas, right off the strip. And, um, and, and I sat and I talked to these guys and I said, Hey, what the freak? I said, you guys, are, he said, listen, we got whacked with some counterfeit stuff very badly years ago. And we were all given marching orders. It ain't going to happen again. <laughs> so, so we're not going to look there. <laughs> because they all kept their friggin' jobs. That's what it was. That's funny. But didn't oh, Louie say, I, I read something where he said, uh, you know, I like to go after maybe like a hundred grand. I just want to do it like a little tax so they don't really get the idea of what's going on. So 
he had this down to a science. Yeah, he certainly didn't get caught out there, and nobody ever applied for a warrant for him out there. He hit both of the casinos in my state, um, uh, one more heavily than the other. But uh, the detection of his stuff was it was almost it was almost it was almost impossible. And, and the way yeah. we did it in Connecticut was, I took the dyes that he used to make the tokens and chips to the companies that manufactured the tokens and chips. We put the two dyes together. And we minted points, and then those um, uh, engineers, the guys that engineered those tokens and coins, gave me small maps. They almost looked like blueprints or diagrams, and said, "On Louis's coin, on this one coin here, there's a little bubble, and if you print it, it'll make a little dent. <laughs> and if you have a little dent, it'll make a little bubble. It's the reverse of whatever it is when you make mint the coin. You right. get the reverse of whatever your die is." So they came up with these minuscule, little, teeny, tiny things that if you're looking at the Indian headdress on this one token, the headdress doesn't come to a sharp point. It's dull on Louis' coin. He didn't get that point. <laughs> I mean, it was like, so we had 12 microscopes in the basement of Foxwoods. We had guys working 12-hour shifts because the judge said, if you don't pull all of the evidence out, I'm going to throw the case out. You can't leave. If you know there's counterfeit money, in this bank, let's say, you can't leave it there. You got to take it out. Right. So we, we had to go through every token, oh. <laughs> the entire Foxwoods inventory, hundreds of thousands of, and we picked out all the bad ones it's that we were aware of. You know, I want to talk to, that close. Well, I want to talk to John about his personality, but mm. before we get into that, one last thing, Jerry, and that is kind of explain to us where he fit into that whole map of the underworld, you know, because he, he wasn't running things. He was an important part of it. Where did he fit? Who did he work for? That kind of thing. Oh, well, he always, and for Louis' sake, I would say he was a friend of theirs. Mm -hmm. So I think that's the best description in mob terms or whatever it is, and you know, kind of things that I would use in my own family. <laughs> yeah, so, so, he, any direct so, so he wasn't he directly friends, reporting but, to somebody mm -hmm. then? He was kind of a, almost oh, an independent yeah. contractor? Oh, yeah. Yeah, he absolutely was. I one of my evidentiary uh, uh, explorations into the stuff that we seized was I took his Rolodex, and he did use an old-fashioned Rolodex that had the little cards in it. And he had all of the mob bosses' names and all of the information and phone number and, and receipts and stuff. So they helped fund this whole thing, the patriarchal crime family, but mostly under the auspices of Louis Monacchio, who was uh, called Baby Shanks. That was his street name. Um junior patriarcha was in prison at the time. I actually flew out. I think he was in Marion, Illinois, and I flew out there. He, he granted me an interview because I needed to talk to him because it was connected. And when I got there, he said, F*** you, I ain't talking to you. And he turned around and went back to his cell. More with writer John Cullen and Detective Jerry Wongo as they discuss the wonderful book, You Thought It Was More, a memoir from the world's greatest counterfeiter, Louis the Coin Colecchio, in just a moment. Speaking of Vegas and the mob, Mr. Big is back and he's talking about some connections with a very famous Vegas developer. Time once again for the vintage Vegas crime water. And one name we always seem to come across is Meyer Lansky. Mr. Big, what's going on with Meyer? Meyer, my good friend, is a very rich man. Did you know, I only found out recently that he had a great business relationship with all people, Howard Hughes. What kind of business relationship? Well, it seems that Mr. Hughes bought every casino 
that Mr. Lansky had an interest in. Every one of them was bought. Every one of these casinos also had something else in common. Not only were they partially owned by Mr. Lansky, but they all had Teepster loan to get them started. Really, what's really interesting about this all is that Mr. Hughes had the most advanced intelligence operation known on the face of the planet. He worked closely with the FBI and the CIA. And if you didn't think that he didn't know that uh, Mr. Lasky was involved and then involved as well with Teepster's loan, I'm thinking you're on drugs. We will have more Vegas mobster stories again next week with Mr. Big. And don't forget to listen to Sports Rock and Tours for the very best in classic sports available wherever you listen to podcasts. You're listening to Vegas Never Sleeps with Stephen Maggi nationwide on the Talk Media Network. Hi, I'm Gordy Brown, and you're listening to Vegas Never Sleeps with Stephen Maggi. You're listening to Vegas Never Sleeps with Stephen Maggi. You are listening to Vegas Never Sleeps. I'm Stephen Maggi, and I'm chatting with screenwriter John Cullen and detective Jerry Longo about the fine book You Thought It Was More by the late Louis the Coin Colavecchio, Andy Tebote, and Franz Dusky. So he just did that to screw with me, so I'd have, a, I'd have a flight out to nowhere and then fly back. <laughs> but, yeah, I mean, he was like an independent contractor for them, you know, a, you know, subcontractor, you might say. <laughs> yeah, a big, you, a big earner. Well, yeah. John. Oh yeah, he's a big earner. Well, let, John, let's yeah. talk about his personality because this right. guy. I'm reading about him, and I'm talking to you guys. He's beyond just an yeah. artist and a smart guy. This guy almost is living kind of a James Bond kind of thing. Real cool guy. Uh, he lived a real interesting life. Well, the, the interesting thing is that he, you know, he had immigrant parents who tried to raise him the right way, and he went to Providence College and was supposed to go the business route. He, uh, you know, worked in his uh, father's tool and die shop, which is where he learned a lot of these trades, a lot of these uh, skills. Um, and but the thing is, he grew up in Federal Hill, uh, so Federal Hill is is where the patriarchal family was really really held sway and. He was rubbing elbows with interesting people, and he saw the cars they were driving and the lifestyle they were leading, and, and he was uh, kind of ended up going that way. And, and one of the reasons is his mentor was uh, Vincent Mealy from um, uh, Sherwood Manufacturing, who that he was a co-owner with Raymond Patriarca of that uh, garment factory. So Louis kind of got started uh, making some money with uh, Vincent at, at his factory you know, uh, working with uh, garments and stuff and sweaters and stuff. And, and Vincent kind of groomed him to, to go along on some uh, some schemes with him, uh, including, you know, he really got started selling fake cashmere sweaters to, to idiots on the street. Uh, they, would, they would try to uh, sell boxes of them. And th- in some cases, they were able to sell them boxes. I got to get rid of this swag, you know, and they're able to sell the boxes with the guy and not even looking in to see what it was. And he's paying... You know, <laughs> ten bucks for for two boxes or, or five boxes or whatever it is, they, they they started doing that kind of stuff, and then obviously, they you know because it's it's a mobbed up uh, manufacturing facility, they're getting uh, five thousand stolen designer raincoats coming in on a truck from Fall River, and and so uh, it's Louis uh, Louis realizes he, they get a tip from a Providence police officer that was mob friendly. 
Uh, the FBI's uh, watching uh, your factory right now. They're about to raid your place in like an hour. So they have an hour to get rid of these 5,000 store designer raincoats. But fortunately, it's a big complex, so they talk to, you know, they talk to their friend Jimmy across the way. He's got a, a dock, and they can kind of move this stuff to, the, to a truck on that dock so the cops don't know. And then they take the truck and they move it to a different facility. So by the time the cops come in, it's gone. You know, and because, you know, Louis took a big role in helping that happen, that really made him become a stand-up guy, as Raymond Patriarca called him. You know, he stood up for Vincent and took, he got Vincent out of there. He, he, he ran that operation to make the place, to clean the place, quote-unquote. And so Raymond, you know, he took a liking to him. And as, as time went on, Louis, you know, just kind of kept thriving in that environment and, and coming up with ways to, make money for Raymond and for the family, you know, for the associates. And obviously the, the, the phone gadget I mentioned was a big hit because that was all the bookies wanted those. They were like, oh, wow, we can beat long-distance phone calls with these gadgets that inside a Barbaro cigarette box? This is awesome. How much for one of those? <laughs> 250 bucks, Louis says. So he's making 250 back in the 60s. That's pretty good money. Oh, yeah. Each of those boxes he's creating, you know, so he's starting to generate money and coming up with ideas and, you know, and he just fit right in. You know, his skill set was like, you know, not typical. Uh, he wasn't a hitman like a bunch of the guys he was hanging out with. He was, he was like the smart guy. You know. You're listening to Vegas Never Sleeps, and we're speaking to writer John Cohen and detective Jerry Wongo. Well, he sounds a, a little like a Henry that. Hill, except H Henry Hill didn't have that kind of yeah. skill set or anything. But in terms of just no, loving the lifestyle, he, he, he did right. he, it did draw him, right? It's like, hey, I want to live like this, you know, and I understand he was a ladies' yeah. man and stuff. And it, it's a way to impress, yeah. <laughs> let's face it. Right. He was a smarter version of Henry Hill. That's what I'm saying. That's why I immediately thought this is like Goodfellas, only it's on steroids in some ways because it's, it's more uh, a little more technical and it's the brain power. And he really had this yeah, catch me if you can uh, kind of yeah. attitude, you know, and, and swagger to him. And he really did feel like he was smarter than the cops. And he did kind of prove it. Well, and, and that goes back to Jerry. From what I understand, a lot of the guys in the Secret Service and other cops, they kind of had a following for him. In other words, they're trying to get him and all that, don't get me wrong, but they sort of all kind of admired him, right, and kind of enjoyed what he was doing in the sense that this guy was such a pro. Yeah, there was a there was a, a Secret Service agent that I worked with in uh, Connecticut. Um, his name was Billy Janadowski. We could just call him Billy G because nobody can spell Janadowski. So... Um, <laughs> He and I worked this. He and I worked this case together, and we just we when we raided his place, we were just so happy. And and he says he says we're really going to get to know him now. And I said yeah. And, and we made some agreements. And his his attorney was one of the I think it was a, a used to be the state's chief state's attorney or somebody I can't remember the guy's name was Jesus throwing me off. But um, I spoke to his representation. We got even he and I got along well on the phone. So. It was, uh, yeah, there was a, I think in the annals of the Secret Service, this still is recorded as one of the largest coin or token counterfeiting cases in U.S. history. So not not bills, not money, because people now produce $100 bills by the billions, but when you talk about tokens that would fit in a slot machine or, or default or, or, or screw over a casino, I mean, he, he had to have, he's probably still got, he's got to have the record. Nobody's done it since. And now... 
paper in, you know, paper out, what they call ticket in, ticket out machines have kind of wiped that industry out. But he was the biggest one ever that I'm aware of. It's so, I mean, Louis helped broke, break the system, right? Right, Jerry? I mean, Louis basically helped break the system where they had to change well, it. He didn't break the system so much as force casinos all yeah. over the country to use that newly development. You know, they could have let their old machines yeah. run for another year or two or three, and then they had to get rid of them. They had they they went yeah. they went paper more a hell of a yeah. lot more quickly than they they had planned on. Yeah. Well, he had yeah. to drive the casinos crazy, I imagine, because they pride themselves on catching people. You know, you don't screw over the, uh, they're going to they're get you, you know. I mean, you, you guys have all covered that stuff with people trying to do, you know, cheat and blackjack and so forth. But this was one guy that was really, uh, he, he, could, he could really challenge him to the point that they just couldn't find him, you know, or couldn't find what he was doing. Well, he did make a one interesting mistake which caught it cost him a lot more years in prison was the fact that by messing with a native american tribe the penalties there's some federal statutes that apply to that if you if you do over a, a, an american indian tribe that has a business like that the penalties are pretty severe which weren't applied we, we worked out a deal with him in connecticut we waived connecticut waived its prosecution of louis to go with one large larger federal case and they didn't have to do that, and they, they really didn't want to do that. But nobody could say a bad a bad word about him in any meeting I was ever sitting in. At. Yeah, it's uh, wild stuff. Uh, I understand his life ended sadly, though, right? He got really uh, his health went down, and uh, he was he spent a little time more time in prison than uh, might have had to. I understand, though, it's just like a movie where. At one point, the guys, he, he ended up and went to work for the good guys, didn't he? Because uh, he was so good at it that he could help them find uh, counterfeits and so forth. He helped He helped one company uh, develop. What he did was he, he, I think he used like tin cans and, and uh, flamethrower burners or whatever the hell those things are, gas burners, to harden the metals so that his coins were actually going to last a lot longer than theirs were. Back with more from writer John Cullen and retired detective and sergeant from the Connecticut State Police, Jerry Longo, in just a moment. If you like great sports tales from the past, make sure to go to Sports R-A-C-X wherever you listen to podcasts. That's Sports R-A-C-X. You're listening to Vegas Never Sleeps with Stephen Mangie, coast to coast on the Talk Media Network. What if every dollar you invested into your training program turned into $30 of revenue? What if your learning program was so engaging that your employees looked forward to annual trainings? And what if you could monitor the success and effectiveness of your curriculum with quantifiable metrics? Go to training.epsilonxr.com. E-learning has made each of these scenarios possible, utilizing tools such as virtual and augmented reality, simulations, and online instructor-led training provides a safe environment for employees to learn at their own pace. Go to training.epsilonxr.com. Here at Epsilon XR, we have 50 years of experience in creating powerful and effective training programs. We combine proven training methods with cutting-edge technology to create immersive training experiences. Are you ready to take your training program to the next level? 
go to training.epsilonxr.com. Training.epsilonxr.com. Welcome back to Vegas Never Sleeps with Stephen Maggi. Welcome back to Vegas Never Sleeps. We are talking with writer John Cohen and detective Jerry Longo as we discuss the book, You Thought It Was More, a memoir from the world's greatest counterfeiter, Louis the Coin Calavicchio, Andy Tebote, and Franz Dowski. Did he, did he ever get yeah, close to getting it. knocked off or anything? You know, because you make some enemies this way, too. <laughs> did, did any- he, uh, he, he, he describes a... Um a, a, time, a kind of a close call, not even really. When he was in Laughlin, uh, mm-hmm. he had he kind he kind of rushed uh, some of the chips for the Pioneer Casino in Laughlin. He was kind of finishing them up in Rhode Island before he flew out to Vegas. And he wasn't mm-hmm. quite all done with roughing them up, giving them that used look. But he said, ah, I'm, "I'll finish them out there." So then uh, it's Halloween, and I guess they went out and they really wanted he really wanted to use the chips. And we mm-hmm. went in there. It's a loose atmosphere. Um, he felt like, yeah, it'll be okay. Um, I think what he did was to, to rough them up, he put a little sand on them. There's beach sand behind these casinos. And he, he kind of roughed, he used some beach sand and, and rubbed the coins in that. And, and he thought that might be enough to give it the, the right feel or look. Yeah. Um, and then he, so he went into the Pioneer and he said he picked the, the oldest dealer in there and figured, oh, this guy won't know any difference. And it turns out, this guy was the sharpest son of a bitch of them all. <laughs> he, he picks up the thing, and, and he realized the chip wasn't, it looked a little too good or something, and he was questioning about him. And, of course, Louis was prepared for that. He said, oh, yeah, I, I, and, and there was some sand on it, because he did rub the sand on it. Like, yeah, I, I just dropped this, the, co- to, um, the tokens in, a, in the sand out in the beach there. Uh, I, I, uh, I feel bad about it, but Hopefully they're all right. And he said, yeah, it's okay. I mean, he, he, he didn't make a big deal out of it, but that guy was the one guy who noticed something might wow. be a little weird with it, you know? And then, so after that, Louis felt like self-conscious about those yeah. chips and he, he took them back to the uh, hotel room and used suntan lotion or something to rough them up some more. And they smelled like coconut. <laughs> and he went, he went to a different casino and like the cashier at that casino made some kind of comment about, Oh, you're having some fun with these chips or something? <laughs> <laughs> and he turned it into he turned it it turned it and it was a woman and he turned it into some kind of uh, uh, sexual thing or of something course. innuendo. <laughs> where it's like, oh, it's, yeah, these are like an aphrodisiac or something like that. So he always had, you know, uh, an answer even when he got in those little jams like that, and it wasn't significant. Nobody was like, oh, wait, let's pull him aside. Yeah. Like when he got busted in Atlantic City, you know, they bring him into a room and there's a real security person. That was different. Out in Vegas, nobody, like, called him out and put him in a, in a room with no windows and started questioning. It was not even close to that. These are very minor little incidents that he had. So he was that good. Well, John, then I have to ask you, you're writing a screenplay and so forth. You're going to have to get the right guy, and it's going to have to be somebody particularly special. And you've got to be able to sell this uh this whole image yeah. and so forth. How do you do that? How do you get that kind of detail, which is crucial, to put to put that up on screen so people can get it? Well, really, that's you know that's the producer's job. I mean, my screenplay. I've tried to be as detailed as possible in that. Um, we have to try to find a producer who who recognizes this kind of story is is an amazing one and 
and can bring that level of detail to it and to hire the right cast to pull off a Louis. I think, you know, if, if my screenplay was produced the way it is, I'd probably need two Louis because I have them starting out as, you know, a yeah. 17 year old kid. Um, and then, you know, and it kind of goes from 1959 to 1997. Um, uh, so you're talking about, you probably need two actors for that. Um, you know, I, I would really like to see Chad Verdi produce it. He was uh, involved with the Irishman. Um, yeah. and he's also done bleed for this, that story about Vinnie Pazienza, the boxer. Um, and he's from Rhode Island. Um, he's a pretty successful producer, so I'm, I'm trying to get him, but guys like him, they have, they have, uh, films booked through 2025, you know? So it's <laughs> exactly, it's, it's challenging. It's challenging to get somebody like that, but that's the kind of guy I'd love to get because he's Rhode Island based. He understands the federal Hill yeah. environment in which Louis came up from which is critical. I mean, you have, you can't, you have to have a certain mindset to become this Louis Calavecchio, the coin man character. You really do. And obviously, you know, any producer uh, like that is going to have some go-to guys who would, who would, you know, love to play a role like this and who they would love to cast in it. You know, he's just coming off a movie that he just did with uh, called Johnny and Clyde with Megan Fox in it. And I believe she stars as a, as like a casino boss mm. and, uh, and the Johnny and Clyde, I guess it's a gay twist on Bonnie and Clyde. And those two guys are trying to rob her casino and no. <laughs> she's yes. like the devil's daughter or something. And he's plugging it on there. So that should be a really interesting movie, but a producer like that, you know, you know, he's going to bring something to the table to make this story come to life. And this is a story that would be set not only in Rhode Island, but in Vegas and Atlantic City and even some scenes in Italy. I've got some scenes in Italy where he goes, you know, he was a huge, huge uh, fan of uh, Italian sports cars. He had a dealership. Um, he was caught in Rhode Island racing a. Uh, uh, the Thomas O. Pantera wow. <laughs> down the highway yeah. in broad daylight. He was doing 100, 140 or whatever. <laughs> so, I mean, this guy was, he, he lived fast and, and he had a lot of fun. Oh, yeah. No doubt about it. Well, you need an advisor like Jerry, too, because I think from the police side, you need somebody that you're going to have to portray that kind of like, on the one hand, I want to get this guy, but on the other guy, the other hand, eh, this guy's special for a different reason, and that's got to come out too, because that's a part of this thing that the people on the on the positive side of the equation actually like the yep. guy. Oh, well, I interviewed Jerry before I finished the script. That's my. I'm, I'm hoping to come, uh, or we are hoping to come. A uh, large group of us uh, are hoping to bring. Uh, I got a, uh, an exhibit to Louis in uh, Connecticut State Police Museum in, in Meriden, Connecticut, and we're gonna. Hopefully, swing it out to the mob museum and It'd put it on great. play there. Well, it would be great when that happens. We'll have you guys on again, John, Jerry. Thank you, sure. and you got to get the book. It's you thought thank it was you. more. It's a great book. It's yep. a great story, and you guys tell the story. Just we feel like we're there. So, thank you very much. Really enjoyed it. Thanks for having us. Your Vegas Insider, Scott Robin of Vital Vegas, is back. Have you heard about self-driving vehicles? Vegas is on the forefront of this new technology, and of course, Scott is on top of the story. Self-driving vehicles, they're actually, you can go to downtown Las Vegas and get on one of these, right? Now, what is it, and more importantly, how's it, do people like it or are they afraid of it? Well, there is a mix of reactions, obviously. People are apprehensive. It didn't help. Uh, this is a, an autonomous vehicle. It is self-driving. There is an attendant on board, I should say that first. It only goes kind of in a circle of about four blocks, so it's not going across town. It's It really is a pilot program. 
the, the reaction is mixed because the very first day this thing was operating, a truck backed out of an alley and bumped into the, into the autonomous vehicle. So that made international headlines. I talked to the gentleman who uh, was in charge of their public relations and he was not having a great day because it looked like, oh, a self-driving vehicle crashed its first day, but really it was human error. Uh, the vehicle did what it was supposed to do, but the, the human driver actually kept moving uh, and, and bumped into this thing. But anyway, I think it's kind of a quirky thing. I think it's cool that it's downtown. It's very, it's kind of in this concentrated area. I've ridden it. I've stepped in front of it. The first time I stepped in front of it, it didn't stop. The uh, other times it has, uh, and I kind of followed the thing around. It's kind of a, um, it's a sophisticated technology because it's doing a lot of calculations all at once. And there's a lot of equipment that has to go on nearby buildings, which I didn't even know about, but it's, it's kind of, it's uh, very sophisticated, obviously. I don't think it's gonna take the place of any cab drivers or, you know, rideshare drivers at the moment, but it's a fun kind of potential uh, advance. Downtown needs the attention. And I, I would get on it in a second again, and it, it only goes 15 miles an hour, so how much damage can you do? Well, it sounds a little like, you know, we always call Las Vegas an adult Disneyland. That sounds like the world of tomorrow, you know, it's like something in the Tomorrowland, because this really is cutting-edge technology. Eventually, I guess we're going to see these all over. I think that in time, we will. I don't think it's as close as those manufacturers would like to think it is, but I think it's it's out there because when you when you have vehicles talking to each other, the human you know humans cause accident. Ninety percent of accidents are just like dumb drivers. So you take the dumb drivers out of it, and now you, now you've got yes, there will occasionally be an accident, but I think it's gonna be it's just gonna be fun for a while, and then I think. Once it's uh, kind of takes over, that's I, I don't think anybody thinks 50 years from now it's going to be people driving cars. I, I hope not, because there are a lot of bad drivers in Vegas, especially. Thanks, Scott. For a great insight to the daily activities in Las Vegas, check out Scott's site, VitalVegas.com. Coming up next is Sports and Tours. Go to Sports RACX wherever you listen to podcasts. That's Sports RACX. It's short for Sports and Tours. And please follow both Vegas Never Sleeps and Sports and Tours on all social media platforms, including Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Thanks for listening today. This is Stephen Maggi reminding you, Vegas Never Sleeps. Vegas, here we go!